from the National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Last week, International Women's Day was used by some, including President Joe Biden, to push abortion. Women deserve so much more. And here on Register Radio, Loretta Brown, our national correspondent, provides perspective. Then EWTN News Executive Editor Matthew Bunsen and I have an Editor's Corner where we talk news and topics you won't want to miss. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. I have the pleasure of being with Matthew Bunsen in Washington this week at EWTN's uh, DC Bureau. Matthew, it's so awesome to be here. It is always good to uh, be able to uh, meet in person, either here or in Birmingham. Birmingham. So, but just welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's been a. It's really been a great week. It's it's good to kind of be back traveling and visiting the team and and um, working in person uh, for a change and and so. Thankfully, we've got good health and, and are able to do this right now. So we also have in studio Loretta Brown, uh, who our audience knows from her her reports, mostly on the pro-life beat, which we're always very grateful. Uh, she's also here working out of the D.C. offices, back in the office again, which is it feels really good um, to be back. Loretta, as usual, um, this week offered uh, news on the pro-life front, or I should say on the anti-life front. Um, This past, I think it was Tuesday, was uh, International Women's Day. And um, and the White House had something to say about that. What, What did the White House do to highlight this day? Yeah, they sure had a lot to say um, for International Women's Day. And one of the main things they highlighted actually was um, what President Biden called his whole of government effort to protect reproductive rights. Um, and so they talked about abortion. They talked about some of their their moves to what they called protect access and expand access to abortion. And one thing they highlighted um, actually was their increase of funding of $56 million to the UN Population Fund. And I saw some irony there because the UN Population Fund partners with the Chinese Agency for Family Planning. And while the UN agency denies any you know, direct link to coerced abortion, that agency that they partner with in China does enforce birth limits, including with you know, forced abortion. And that has resulted in an enormous imbalance in the sex ratio in China. The last estimate I saw was 34 million more men than women. Right. So really, like more money to this fund that partners with this agency, to me, does not seem to be a move that empowers women. Precisely. And that's that really is the irony in all of this. I mean, because, uh, you know, the White House's way of... Um, of honoring women uh, had to do with promoting abortion and and as if all women support abortion and so it's it's complete injustice well and uh, on top of that you have the the big push for gender ideology which was uh, so prevalent uh, in international women's day as well uh, and loretta from the abortion standpoint uh, there's a lot of pushback on the white house so what were you hearing and what were you covering Well, it was interesting to see um, in terms of International Women's Day, some pro-life women spoke out about 
Um, the greatest privilege of being a woman is being a mother. That was Lila Rose of Live Action talked about that. And Jeannie Man Mancini of the March for Life quoted Mother Teresa, who said abortion is profoundly anti-woman um, on that day. So it's good to see that push back. Um, and then also, I mean, I think many people were surprised the president's State of the Union address. He talked about advancing liberty and justice with the constitutional right affirmed in Roe v. Wade, like protecting that. And that, that statement, I mean, even compared to President Obama's comments in 2015 and his State of the Union, where he, he actually was like looking for some unity. He said, we may not agree on a woman's right to choose, but we can agree, like it's a good thing that teen pregnancies and abortions are at all time lows. That was how he approached the issue. And so when you see, you know, President Biden talking about it in this forceful of a way, I think you really actually see some of the heat the administration is feeling from the abortion lobby. Um, where they're worried about, you know, potentially the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. So we're seeing some really strong language out of the White House and um, certainly a lot of pushback on that from pro-life advocates. Right. And, and that pushback uh, goes, of course, way beyond, um, you know, what he might feel compelled to say at the State of the Union or, or what he might say on women's International Women's Day. I mean, right now we're also looking at his pick for uh, the Supreme Court. And I'll turn to that in a minute. But, you know, you mentioned the State of the Union. I mean, just out of curiosity, how often is it that abortion makes it into a State of the Union address? Is that a common thing? It is not, no. So I had looked through um, a bunch of past State of the Union addresses just to compare a little because it d did strike me that President Biden raised this issue. And I mean, I mentioned, you know, how President Obama um, had, had approached it when he, you know, when he was president in his address. And aside from that, I mean, we'd had some mentions from, you know, President George W. Bush and um, President Trump about mm -hmm. uh, partial birth abortion, late term abortion, and how barbaric that was. But aside from that, there really wasn't uh, much mention of abortion in past State of the Union addresses. So, you know, that he was compelled to use that um, for this forum is, is important. But as you say, it's, it's, it's mostly, it's not only, because I think this was going on with Biden for a very long time. It was a central issue for a very long time. And, and obviously it was a crucial I issue, you know, in him getting the Democratic n nomination to begin with, his pivot there. Uh, but but yeah, it, it's that important that it has to come up everywhere. Um, and, and as I mentioned, so we've got um, pro-life legal experts. This is the title of your of an article. Pro-life legal experts say Biden's Supreme Court pick, Katanji Brown Jackson, is no moderate. Uh, what are they saying? Who is this? You know, who is this pick? Um, what what is she made of? <laughs> what has she done? And um, what is the criticism uh, from from the pro-life movement? Yeah, so she she doesn't have much of a record directly on the issue of abortion, but one thing that you know a lot of people brought up to me and that certainly stood out to me um, in her record is that as a uh, working for a private law firm in 2001, she co-authored a brief on behalf of abortion providers, including like Massachusetts Narrow, um, advocating a buffer zone in Massachusetts where pro-life demonstrators couldn't approach women, and so. It, in this brief, she um, pro-lifers were described as a hostile, noisy crowd of in-your-face mm. protesters. Um, she she talked about, um, you know, the brief said it's hard to imagine an audience more presumptively unwilling to hear protesting by anti-abortion protesters than women entering a clinic for the purpose of having an abortion. And those words, I see kind of a narrow view of of pro-lifers in in those words and. 
and a, a sadly a narrow view of maybe a woman's openness to hearing different viewpoints as she's making kind of a huge decision right. and, and entering a clinic. And so um, people brought this up to me because it is, it is powerful, striking language in this brief she co-authored. And it, it doesn't really uh, reveal the most flattering view of, of right. pro-lifers. Right. One of the things we always struggle with at the register when we're reporting on the Supreme Court or, or reporting on many things is just using those kind of classic um, labels, right? Uh, conservative, liberal. And of course, it, get, it happens all the time in media uh, that we call the, the court, you know, right now has a super majority that is conservative. It's in some ways very unfortunate that we have to classify, you know, the court in this way. They're supposed to be neutral. I don't think the other side has any problem classifying things this way. They don't tiptoe around the subject, you know. What's your thoughts, Matthew? Well, no, I agree. And with a very important uh, historical uh, point to make there, too, and that is that uh, justices who were nominated and approved on the assumption that they would be quote-unquote conservative, David Souter comes to mind, for example, have proven to be major disappointments to the conservative movement. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think we would all be very hard-pressed to find any justice who was uh, confirmed under the assumption that they would be progressive or liberal has ever really disappointed the, the progressive movement. Absolutely. And we can certainly look at that uh, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the, in the recent history of the court, and especially now with uh, Sonia Sotomayor uh, and Elena Kagan. Right, right. So right now, I mean, what we're seeing clearly, quite clearly, and Loretta, you can speak to this because you cover this much more in depth than I do from my, uh, you know, 30,000 view, view um, uh, 30,000-foot view. But you, you know, there's the gloves are off. I mean, they they are going to push for their agenda in this. But is there a loss in that for us or, or for, um, you know, for the country at this moment? Oh, certainly. I think so. I think the, the dialogue around this and the discussion of it it is unfortunate that these these judges, these justices can't can't be viewed as as kind of neutrally approaching an issue, mm -hmm. and it is such a it's just become a very a partisan heated battle. And I mean, I think some of it has to do with how divisive some of these issues have gotten. And um, yeah, certainly in the in the case of Katanji Brown Jackson, it will be interesting to to tune into the confirmation hearing and to see how she approaches this. I know in past confirmation hearings, she's been very hesitant to reveal any views because of how um, how heated this gets. Right, and, of course. Yeah. No, it makes sense, and uh, of course, I mean, it's not going to change the balance of the court. Um, but I think the litmus test for for. for you know, on both sides, actually, is a dangerous thing for the balance of uh, powers uh, in our government. And so it's a it's really a disturbing aspect, but it, it does reflect, I think, um, how heated, as you mentioned, the country is. Uh, I don't think it reflects um, the majority of people in our country, I, I think. But Matthew. And Loretta, as an observer of these confirmation hearings, especially in this setting right now, do you have the sense, though, that um, there is less concern about trying to block this particular nomination because of the current chemistry and makeup of the court, uh, but also this is to replace Stephen Breyer? Yes, I do definitely get that sense that this this um, fight over the confirmation hearing, I mean, serious issues will be raised. There are people that are going to bring up concerns. Um, 
But ultimately, I think everyone does have in mind that this will not change the makeup of the court dramatically. And that was something I did hear from people is that, yeah, she's coming in to, to replace Justice Breyer. So um, really, their, their views are similar, it seems, from what we can see of both of them. <laughs> So I want to close on a on a different note, a better note, a positive note, and um, and still yet a pro life note. Um, and and so, you wrote this great article about coffee and the pro life cause. And sometimes that's a really unusual thing to hear because you know we know of Starbucks, we know what they support. Um, maybe there's an assumption that lots of these uh, kind of places um, uh, support the abortion movement. Um, but yet you have dug up. Uh, some coffee lovers who uh, are in the coffee industry that uh, support life. Uh, who are they? What what are they doing? There's some really inspiring companies that I stumbled across, Seven Weeks Coffee and Lifeboat Coffee. Um, they have this idea that, you know, we can't just complain about these links to the abortion industry with these, as you mentioned, these bigger coffee companies, uh, mainstream companies. So they um, their companies give back to pro-life pregnancy centers a percentage of their of their proceeds, and they just really wanted to to make a difference. And they're also passionate about coffee, about how it's sourced, the taste, you know. So they they work on that part of it. And um, you know, the name of Seven Weeks Coffee I found mm-hmm. very inspiring. It was an idea from the the founder's wife that uh, you know a, a child at seven weeks is the size of a coffee bean. Oh, that's so, really great. Yeah, it was a sweet little reminder. That's brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Educating and instructing with, with coffee. <laughs> That's wonderful. I love that story. I'm so glad you came up with it and you spent the time to, you know, investigate these people and and find out why they do what they do because it's part of pro-life work, I think, to change the culture, not just to affect policy. And we see a lot of good people doing that. And I, I think it it's very, very important. So thanks for highlighting that. Uh, Loretta Brown, our national correspondent here at the Register, thanks for being with us. We'll be taking a short break, then Matthew Bunsen and I will have an editor's corner where we talk about news and topics you won't want to miss. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. This Lenten season, read, reflect, and revive your faith with EWTN's National Catholic Register. Only the Register provides trusted news reporting and in-depth analysis that's always true to Catholic teaching. It informs, inspires, and equips Catholics to engage the world around them with the truth of the gospel. Let the Register accompany you, help you go deeper spiritually, and enrich your journey this Lent and beyond. Try it for free today and get it delivered to your home, office, or parish. Get six free issues today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faith. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. I'm joined from the EWTN News Studio in Washington, D.C. I'm with Matthew Bunsen in person, and I love it. (laughs) (laughs) We are having fun, that's certain. (laughs) Exactly. It's good to do an Editor's Corner. I mean, these are always great opportunities just to talk about the news that's going on and and in some ways to talk about what strikes us. Um, That's right. uh, 
Matthew, I've been on vacation uh, last week, and I'm here in D.C., so I've been in a whirlwind. It's hard to follow all the news um, at a time like this. But, of course, you can't uh, ignore, even on vacation, the tragedy in Ukraine right now. And, and so that's certainly been on my mind, and it's been a lot on the mind of, uh, of EWTN and, and the register team. Uh, we've got a lot um, that we've covered there. And I think the important part of our coverage, because every news media is covering this, is what, uh, where the church and that's a big church. It's, it's yes. <laughs> Where the church is in all of this, and um, and that's not just the Roman uh, church, and and so we've been trying to cover that very messy, messy situation. Um, uh, Father Raymond D'Souza had a great piece this week um, talking about that very situation. It's one that you have followed. And I guess I would ask in a snippet, because this is your specialty, is the history, is what churches are we dealing with, and why is it so messy? Well, this has uh, become something of a great opportunity for Roman Catholic, Latin Catholics uh, mm-hmm. to be much more aware of two things, the the richness of Catholicism in the sense that we have these beautiful Eastern churches that are often overlooked and forgotten. Right in the middle of this conflict, we have the, the Catholic churches in Ukraine. We have the, the Greek Ukrainian Greek Catholic churches, uh, church. We have the Armenian Catholics. We have the Ruthenian Catholics, and then we have the, the, the small population of Latin Catholics. All of them are now caught up in this drama, and on top of that, uh, we have the complexity of what is happening in the Orthodox world, right. because this invasion of Ukraine has shattered uh, many aspects of Orthodox unity, certain certainly fraternity between the Ukrainian Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox, but it also has dragged in, as it must, uh, the ecumenical patriarch, Bartholomew in Constantinople, and the other Orthodox churches around the world. So there is a lot happening, and all of this is impacting as well the ecumenical question, the relationship between the Holy See and the Russian Orthodox Church, in particular, Patriarch Kirill, the the Patriarch of Moscow. And that is something that Father Raymond, I think, really focused on quite impressively in his piece. Exactly, because um, uh, Patriarch Kirill really stands at the center of this conflict, of course, not only now, but uh, really for the last few years um, as the head of the, the Russian Orthodox Church. And and just what that has meant um, under under Putin. And, um, and I think that's where there's a lot of, uh, of challenging aspects in, in, in a way, respecting uh, Patriarch's uh, Kirill's voice in this moment. Um, it's not a neutral voice. No, it's not. And the, the question is, can it be from the standpoint of the Russian Orthodox? And that, that's one of the questions I think that uh, Father Raymond is asking. And he, the, the title of it is, you know, call it the Kirill question. And the question really is, how should Pope Francis and the Holy See deal with Patriarch Kirill of Moscow, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, when so much in terms of ecumenical progress with the Russian Orthodox Church, which let's all remember is the largest of the Orthodox churches in the world, and some would say the most influential. How does this moment uh, go forward in terms of that ecumenical relationship? Is another meeting even possible at this point between Pope Francis and Kirill, something that has been of great importance to Francis? Right, right. I I mean, this stuff is so complex. It's really hard sometimes for me to follow all of it. And I think I'm one of those who is taking this moment and trying to learn the history. Um, 
I think some of us um, uh, have been confused about um, some of the the things that Kirill and and others um, who are a part of the church and and even a part of our own Latin church, you know, um, have seen them making the case, the Kirill and others, making the case that part of this fight, um, this battle, is against the liberalism and not. Not liberalism in the good sense, not, you know, liberalis, uh, tr- liberalism as a tradition that, that encompasses part of the church, but progressivism. Right. Um, what is, you know, the dangers of the LGBT movement that is everywhere now. Um, uh, LGBT is most of what they talk about, but there's the issue of abortion. Mm-hmm. And and some have said that this uh, is also in a uh, uh, part of Putin's battle, part of Patriarch Kirill's support for Putin is because it's against that liberalism and progressivism of the West. I find that a very difficult argument, um, but some have made it, um, and some even within the, the church and Catholics that I've heard from have made that argument too. Uh, what do you make of it? Well, I, I agree. I think that has been uh, in the, the sort of the tenor of some of uh, what we've heard from Patriarch Kirill, and that has certainly been one of the justifications that has been used over the last years. This isn't something brand new with this invasion. Part of the discussion in 2014 when Russia seized Crimea was exactly that, that these eastern portions of Ukraine wanted to separate precisely over the question of uh, the creeping secularism in the West and a loss of Christian identity. And that's also something I, I can remember uh, speaking personally with uh, Hilarion Alfeyev, the Metropolitan uh, Volokolomsk, I think, and the Ukrainian or, or Russian Orthodox uh, foreign minister in Budapest last year. Mm-hmm. And he was very pointed in raising those questions of Christian identity and the battle against secularism. So this has been, this has been floating around now for a while. It is true that the, re- the West is growing more and more progressive. I mean, there is a great, really a great truth in that. But to me, war, (laughs) um, physical battle, taking up arms is not the solution, nor should it um, be something that we sanction or pat, go ahead, because in in accomplishing this war, you're also going to help us stop you know, liberalism. Uh, but not everybody seems to think that way. I mean, some have actually said, okay, but but the Russian side is the right side because they support, um, you know, traditional values. And then you have some who are espousing a view uh, uh, even broader. Uh, I, I will speak in paraphrases here in terms of what Archbishop Vigano has written, but that Russia and Ukraine are being pulled into what he refers to as a new world order. Mm. So we have that as well uh, in in some of the thinking here that's happening. Uh, but then we've got um, the basic question of fear and understandable fear on the part of Catholics in Ukraine. None of this can happen without us remembering vividly what befell uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church for Catholics in Ukraine uh, from the time of Soviet domination. Mm -hmm. And there is genuine and understandable concern uh, that uh, Russia taking over Ukraine again could bring about a new wave of persecution uh, for Catholics. Right. I I think, it again, back to history, um, we'll tell our audience about some really good stories they should read on the register that are not related to Ukraine, but in a few minutes. But just to get back to the history, 
Father Raymond D'Souza really puts it well. He explains um, the Russian Orthodox Church and, and how it was revived uh, after, uh, I mean, just really how it was revived. And That's that right. is super important because if we don't know that bit of history, if we don't know how closely aligned it is to the state and the lack of freedom that it has in that, I, I think we're inclined to believe that rhetoric about holding Russia holding to um, you know truth about the human person and about families and about <laughs> all that right. but the, the history doesn't say that well and, and Vladimir Putin recognizes uh, that uh, that relationship with the Russian Orthodox Church is politically but also culturally essential for him mm-hmm. uh, in much the same way that and I'm not comparing the Orthodox Church to communism but there was always this belief that you needed to have some kind of cultural glue atheistic communism under the Soviets was their glue Putin recognizes that in the history of Russia, it has always been the Russian Orthodox Church. And so he, that alliance is a logical one. And if you want an emblem of it, and Father Raymond yeah. talks about that, is the recently christened Cathedral of the Russian Armed Forces. I have no idea how much money went into this, but it is, it, it is a monument to this relationship. It is a cathedral of the Russian armed forces. Forget our, you know, our Lady Queen of Peace. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, Wow. And it, it is impressive architecturally, uh, but more than that, it is the symbolism of mm-hmm. that relationship. Uh, and that's something we need to be very much aware of. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's certainly something to um, to read about, to learn about, uh, not just take simple you know, voices who are speaking out in this regard. We, we really need to dig in and, and, as Catholics, understand it, and especially just to pray for an end to this conflict. I mean, that that's, above all, so important for life. Um, I did want to mention some interesting stories uh, on the website right now uh, at ncregister.com. One of them is um, something great for Lent, where we're following so many different rules um, in, in our Lenten practice. Uh, Lent sometimes feels like for Catholics a rule-following mode, and, and we kind of embrace it um, because of that, and we don't put a ton of thought into it or whatnot. Um, or we just say, oh, I'm going to kind of be loosey-goosey, whatever it is. We fall on different sides of the spectrum. But David Mills, a commentator here at the Register, wrote a great piece, a, a convert considers the joy of Catholic rules. And I, I love the piece because it really makes you think, and it helps you, us cradle Catholics like me, just really think about the rules and whether or not I'm embracing them uh, for the right reasons and with thought. Uh, so it's a good reminder for me. Uh, there's also a great piece by K.V. Turley, who I just love his creativity. Uh, this one is about a fellow, fellow countryman, G.K. Chesterton, that the world loves. Um, we certainly love him in the U.S. And he became Catholic 100 years ago. Uh, he was drawn by Jerusalem and Our Lady. And it's really a great piece by K.V. I know you're a fan of Chesterton. I am, and a fan of K.V. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So that's a great piece worth uh, worth the read. But there's something else on the tip of your tongue. And what's going on? Well, that was just a, a, a piece said to go back to Ukraine by Andrea Gagliarducci, uh, who talks about Vatican diplomacy and why there was a that's sudden right. shift uh, in the tone, sort of the tenor of Pope Francis's approach to this. I would encourage everyone to read that. All right. Very good. Well, it's always fun to be here, and I wish we had a whole another segment to talk about um, lots of things in the Catholic world, but we always appreciate... Uh, our listeners, uh, for tuning in and for going to ncregister.com. Remember, when you go there, there's a lot more news, analysis, and commentary at the National Catholic Register. 
Thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello. And until next week, God bless you.